Welcome to our discussion segment on the roots of modern American conservatism. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. And today we're talking about standing athwart history, William F. Buckley Jr. Let's get started. Hey, John. How's it going? Going well. How are you doing? Doing all right. Good. So I say this every time, but I really enjoyed this podcast. <laughs> I Good. I always do. As I was hearing this, a thought came to mind specific to... When someone thinks of the word conservatism, a lot of different images show up in their head. Oh, yeah. So Especially nowadays, because I think historically you must take the word in context to the environment from where it actually comes from. So can you define for our audience American conservatism? I think it's best to use the Buckley definition of conservatism because I think it's the correct one. I mean, I could give you there. I mean, there's the Trump definition of conservative to the extent that Trump is a conservative. There's the Fox News conservative. There's the Rush Limbaugh conservative. There's the uh, Bill Crystal conservative. But I think Buckley kind of summarized it really, really well, where he said that it is the job of centralized government in peacetime to protect its citizens' lives, liberty, and property. All other activities of government tend to diminish freedom and hamper progress. So basically, a conservative is someone who believes in government's job is to protect natural rights, and that's about it. You don't go any further than that. You don't get involved in foreign wars. You don't get involved in domestic spying. You don't have a welfare state. You don't have any of that stuff unless, and here's the key, it is democratically chosen by a majority of the American people. Conservatives do believe in small-d democracy and the people getting what they want, but they want an educated and well-informed public to know what they're getting into. So if we're going to build a welfare state, you understand that there's always a trade-off. This is not a criticism of the welfare state. Welfare state's really necessary, but there's always going to be a trade-off. So I think that's where the modern conservative movement comes from. Interesting. Why is William F. Buckley not a known figure today? You mentioned that in the podcast, yeah. but can you clarify why you think that is? Sure. He represents an older generation of media commentators, someone who didn't speak in 30-second or 20-second or, or 5-second sound bites that can easily be retweeted. His ideas are so big that they require a lot of words, and because of his kind of eccentricities and his immense vocabulary, he used as many words as possible. I mean, today we'd probably call it purple prose, but he never used, you know, five words when 20 would do. The ideas that he is presenting are very simple, and yet he's using 500 words to explain this simple idea. And collectively, as a nation, we don't have the attention span for someone like that. I don't mm -hmm. think you have to really love politics, particularly conservative politics, to really know a lot about William F. Buckley. And yet, for conservatives, his impact is felt everywhere within the Republican Party, within generally the conservative movement, Fox News, talk radio, all of them trace their roots back to Buckley. But they don't, people don't really know or recognize that. I think the only talk radio show who, uh, host who I've ever heard even acknowledge William F. Buckley is Rush Limbaugh because he knew Buckley. And I don't know if any of the other big talkers on the radio know who he is because I don't think they knew him. Okay. It's interesting that the succinct definition of conservatism that... Buckley just said in terms of here's the role of government. It's a very simple explanation. It's easy yeah. to un understand. Contrasting that with his style of, to your point, speaking in a lot of words, mm -hmm. I don't think he was ever trying to show off. I just think, no. to your point, it's like these big, dynamic, complex ideas, but yet we heard this is what it means to be a conservative. Yeah, I mean, he could, he could speak pretty plainly when he wanted to, and he wanted to give 
as I talked about in the podcast, a very clear definition. Something that Russell Kirk and the other early conservatives of the 1940s and 1950s didn't have is, well, what does it actually mean to be a conservative? I mean, Kirk is talking about family, church, and local community, but he never defines conservative in the book, A Conservative Mind. A lot of the other early conservative leaders did the same thing. They would allude to what conservatives meant, but they never actually defined it. And that's what Buckley did with National Review and in his public appearances. But Buckley could be very quippy and, and, very, and very quick with his words. I mean, we saw that with the Gore Vidal incident in 1968. He was, yeah, he we'll was talk pretty, about that later. Yeah, he, he was pretty quick. He didn't need a whole lot of words to put Vidal in his place. Yeah, yeah no kidding. So in this section, God and Man at Yale, mm -hmm. it struck a chord with me because we hear a lot of what Buckley was talking about today. Oh, yeah. Still, we hear it from Ben Shapiro. We hear it from Jordan Peterson. We hear it from... Anyone that speaks at a college campus, whether it be liberal or conservative, mm -hmm. mainly conservative, who doesn't follow the groupthink which exists in academia, I immediately had the question, did this change anything? Obviously, it made parents aware of what was going on, yeah. but it doesn't seem like it. everything that he's talking about still exists now. I would say much more so. Mm -hmm. So can you describe the, the impact it had? Sure. Well, first, just to go back to something you said a moment ago. The comparison between Buckley and what we what we see now, I think, is best uh, you compare him to Jordan Peterson, because Jordan Peterson is not political. He speaks truth, but not in a political way, and that's what God and Man at Yale was. God and Man at Yale is not a book that Ben Shapiro would write. Ben Shapiro would, would write a very, very different kind of critique here, so I just wanted to clarify sure. that. God and Man at Yale was kind of a fire bell in the night, as it were. It was a warning that this is what's happening. And what you do see in the late 50s, after God and Man at Yale was published, is you start to see more of a shift towards conservatism within the education system, and then Vietnam happens. And the Vietnam War, as we're probably going to talk about later on in this season, is going to be the defining moment for American education because the people who opposed the Vietnam War, for ideological reasons, didn't want to go fight in the Vietnam War. And what was the quickest way to get out of fighting? It was to go to college. And it was then to stay in college after four years and get graduate degrees. And then after you get a graduate degree, you do what? What are you going to do with your graduate degree in 16th century French literature? You're going to teach. And so the academic left just swarmed college campuses during the 1960s and 70s and basically caused the prophecy you might call it, of God and Man at Yale to be fulfilled. And I don't know if Buckley saw that when he wrote the book, that, that a war could do, I, I you'd almost say that no, he, there's no way he could have foreseen that. But there's always trends in education you know, towards one side or the other. You see a minor swing back in the 80s when Reagan's president towards the political right. And now, because of recent events, starting with the war in Iraq, and then the Obama presidency, and now the Trump presidency, the left has tightened its grip really on college campuses. So on the section for National Review, reading that publication, it's, it's easy to forget who actually started it. I really loved the idea that Buckley had with bringing in people of different thought. So it wasn't conservative. It was a variety of people in order to have a spirited debate where like if you and I don't agree on something I, and I lose, which never happens. Oh, never, never, <laughs> never at all. I'm not going to go home and question my identity as right. a result of it. I'm not going to hate your guts because you beat me somehow. And I think that he really tried to have that and accomplish that. He did. Yeah. And so it is interesting because how the publication is viewed now is very different. Oh, it's very doctrinaire. It's very dogmatic. I mean, he brought in multiple 
people, you're right, but they all fit his definition of conservatism. And he made the point that conservatism is a big tent. So you have the traditional faith and family conservatives who are basically going to be what today you would call your social conservatives. He then has the economic libertarians. Basically, government should spend money on national defense and coining money, and that's about it. Then you have the anti-communists, the national security hawks, the foreign policy conservatives. He created the modern you know, three-legged stool that defines traditionally, that has defined traditionally the Republican Party, social conservatives, economic conservatives, and national security conservatives. And yes, where they disagreed, they would argue and debate in the magazine, but you had to fit the umbrella of, we believe in the protection of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He's not going to invite a progressive to write for the magazine, except as maybe a guest contributor, but they're not going to be working there. Yeah. So in the podcast, you detailed how he was against those extremist groups that were anti-Semitic, racist, and so on. How does that qualify with the civil rights comment he made? Yeah. Because It's so tough. Because, yeah, because the statement he made, and true, he regretted it later. It's just like, yeah, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just like, what, what what he said was pretty extreme, right? Oh, yeah. So it's you just, get hurled out of politics today if you said some of the things that oh he said. Oh, my gosh. So how is it that this was bad over here, but this was okay over here? I mean, did he ever bridge that gap to say, here's what I was thinking, or I was taken oh, yeah. out of context or something? No, like, he wasn't taken out of context. For Buckley personally... And he wasn't speaking for National Review or for the conservative movement. Buckley, more than anything else, was a textualist and originalist when it came to the Constitution. So since the Constitution says in the Tenth Amendment, anything not in this document is left to the states and to the people, Buckley, while being personally very anti-segregationist and anti-racist, said, listen, I hate segregation and racism, but it is constitutional. That was actually the easier part to define. I think most, most conservatives can, can kind of understand that. What's harder to see, and I think what you're talking about, is where he talked about that whites in the South had the right to impose superior mores. Is that the part you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. What he was trying to say, and again, I think this is, this is an instance where his vocabulary kind of hurt him, and he couldn't make a very, very clear and unambiguous statement. And, I, and to be clear, one, I don't agree with this, and two, I could be totally wrong in my interpretation of what he's saying. So just for our audience... To understand that. I think what he was saying is that because there is such a huge gap between the races at this time, there has to be some kind of separation until culturally we can start to see a greater equality between whites and blacks. Okay. And the way you do that in the southern states is you do it by segregation. In the northern states where you don't have Jim Crow laws, you see it in different neighborhoods. I mean, the 60s was when you saw more people who were white leaving the cities and going out into the suburbs, white flight, that started in the 60s. That was, I think, the northern and the, and the non-segregationist expression of what Buckley was saying. So I don't think he was defending segregation. I think he was saying that, that some kind of separation is necessary until we can eventually see a greater equality. The problem is, if you're separate, you can never be equal. And that's, right, that's what I think equal. Buckley was never able to fully wrap his mind around or fully put into words and even that, understand. I don't know yeah. that he really understood that. I think that there's a good chance that he was, he kept starting with what the constitution said. You think in terms of the states, yeah. what the state should be doing It's like, since this is true, then this must be true. Right. So that's kind of where I landed. I still, obviously it's still an extreme statement. still wrong. Oh, yeah. I don't agree with it. Uh, it's just, it, it was interesting like to pair, like he's not racist. He doesn't agree with these extreme groups. Mm -hmm. 
but yet he made these comments. And I think getting it in context of history, knowing the kind of man he was and saying, okay, this is probably what he meant, not what everybody's yeah. saying saying he meant. And to be clear, this is this is not kind of reinterpreting because I don't want to call Buckley a racist. You have to understand what the word racist actually means. Racism is a belief in genetic superiority of one race over another. Buckley didn't believe that there was any kind of genetic difference between whites and blacks in America or anywhere else in the world. He believed in cultural differences, and he saw a cultural difference between white and black Americans, and he was a cultural elitist. I mean, you, you talk to him about the supremacy of Western civilization, he is talking about white Anglo-Saxon Christian civilization as being superior to all others. And he was very much an elitist on that point. But he is not saying that it has anything to do with the color of your skin. Yeah, it's interesting because when I talk to somebody who's a libertarian, we get in the conversation about the Civil War. And the person I'm talking to is not racist. Mm -hmm. They're not a bigot. They're not any of those things. But when I talk to them about states' rights in terms of like slavery, it gets very interesting. And I say interesting because I get ticked off mm -hmm. at what they're saying because I don't agree with it. What are they saying? Just to well, to specify that the states had the right to do what they want. Yeah. The North actually violated states' rights in order to do that. Mm -hmm. It's just like, well, the immorality that was being subject, like when you think about the Constitution, we talked about this in season one, what influenced the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. Exactly. Libertarians forget the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, yeah. It Everybody God. does. That's why yeah. we did a whole, whole episode on it. So it's just like, well, it had to happen. Mm -hmm. It was immoral. It was the exact opposite to what was intended for this country. And so they go into detail about why the Civil War ruined the idea of a state having rights and yeah. all that. So taking a context of the conversation, you understand what they're actually saying. It would be very easy for me if I wasn't aware and paying attention to what they were saying to jump to a conclusion like, well, you're just a racist. Right. It seems like today, radical thought, what we would say like far right or, or far like extremism, is usually associated with conservatism versus the other side of the spectrum. No one ever discusses that we see in the media or anywhere else extreme left-wing thought, such as communism, which is in some circles applauded now. Right. But I mean, it's not labeled. So it's there, but it's not labeled as radical thought. Is, you're right. Is right. what you mean? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's not considered radical. But if somebody says I'm a conservative to the wrong group, mm -hmm. that group would say, "Well, you're a radical, bigoted, racist, yeah. homophobe, all these things." Versus somebody says, "Well, I'm a communist." Like, oh, really? Really? I, yeah. I'd be interested hearing more about that. I think, and this is just my opinion. Everyone comes at these these kinds of questions with a bit of a bias. I try to be as unbiased as I can, but it's inevitable. I think it's because, generally speaking, modern, and this is not talking about Buckley's era, modern progressives discourage free thought, whereas modern conservatives embrace and encourage free thought. So when it comes to a, a radical idea, if the so-called elites, if people in Washington are running for president on ideas that are little different than the ideas of Vladimir Lenin or of Karl Marx, that's approved thought among the elites, and that, that is now something that's acceptable. And so then you get the communists on Twitter, and you get the democratic socialists, bartenders who become members of Congress, running on these same platforms. All of that is approved thought, whereas people on the right, that's not approved thought. It's not even considered acceptable within elite circles in Washington, New York, Boston, the Acela Corridor, and out on the West Coast for you to have these thoughts. And so that's why they get tarred as as radicals. I also think it's because conservatives, generally speaking, are less worried about what other people think. 
progressives tend to be very concerned with being labeled as social outcasts. They want to avoid that at all costs. They think that I have to be part of this group, and if I'm you know, denounced on Twitter or if I'm labeled on Facebook or Instagram as being this horrible human being, my life's over. Generally speaking, conservatives, we don't care. Someone calls us a racist, fine. I'm not. I know I'm not. My friends, my family, the people I care about, they know I'm not. I don't care if a blue checkmarked Twitter liberal wants to call me a uh, racist or a bigot or something like that. By the way, I didn't get all of this stuff on my own. I'm actually stealing a lot of this from a guy named Greg Gutfeld, who's a commentator on The Five. You should all go find his podcast and his books. They're fantastic. Great. Did that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, it did. There's, there's so many members of the Republican Party, though, who believe the same thing. So that they would say that conservative thought is still not approved. Oh, versus, sure, because we have, we have our conservative elites. They're conservative elites, which National Review is a part of. You know, traditional conservative view is you have to believe in, again, speaking today, not speaking of the Buckley era, you have to believe in free trade. You have to believe in you know, nation building in the Middle East. You have to believe in tax cuts for billionaires and tax cuts for corporate entities. So anyone who disagrees, like Donald Trump, who says, why do we need NATO? Why do we need all these wars in the Middle East? Why do we need free trade? I'm going to renegotiate free trade, blah, 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 on and on and on. That is labeled as radical thought because it goes against the official line of the conservative elite. So you just said a lot there. Yeah. And when we think about orthodoxy mm -hmm. between the two groups, so whether it be far left or far right, both of them have that. Why? <laughs> <laughs> so it, like to me, it's like you, you, you do something and you see if it works. And if it doesn't work, then you don't do it anymore. It's pretty simple, but... Oh, that's true individually. I don't know that that's true in government and but, in politics. But in terms of government, you have people who say, okay, whether it be right or left, they, they can look at something and say that this is not working mm -hmm. the way that it's supposed to be working. So a great example, in the 90s, uh, Bill Clinton signed welfare reform. Yep. Okay, so Congress brought this bill before him. He wasn't overly excited about it, but when he read it, he did sign it. Because welfare at the time was broken. It wasn't mm -hmm. working the way it was supposed to be working. So it's just like, okay, we need to think of some type of solution. Yes, it's a government program that government created, but it is it is a problem. So it's just I, like, why, why is there an orthodoxy that would prevent those type of conversations on both sides? I think, and we'll probably have to end it here because we're getting pretty long. When students ask me this, and I get asked this all the time in my government class, why do people keep pushing policies that don't work? There's two possible explanations. If there's one political lesson I could teach every American, it would be this. People either don't understand the mechanics behind why a program doesn't work, or they simply don't care because their agenda is not that program working. That program working is a fortunate byproduct. The fact that the program exists is part of their agenda. It's either ignorance or it's intentional. And I think that's true whether, whether it's the, the left totally or the right. Yeah. You can talk about the most far-left viewpoints or you can talk about conservative Republican orthodoxy. In both cases, either they know it's not working and they don't care because they've got something else going on or they're ignorant of what it is. And I don't want to ascribe motives to various politicians. That's not what this podcast is for. But it is a lesson for people who are looking at politics to consider if something is demonstrably not working, and people still push this idea, it's either intentional or they're ignorant. All right.
So let's talk a bit about the exchange between Gore Vidal and Buckley. When I first heard this and read this... Have you I was, seen the actual clip? Yeah, yeah. So I, I was thinking, well, nowadays he'd be cheered on. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be like hashtags Buckley wins. Well, I don't and, know. He, he did call him a rather unkind word for... I know, but I'm just saying, like, it's, it's interesting how times have changed. True. Because nowadays people are just like word vomit they just say they just throw slurs all over the place regardless of which side and back then it's like shut it down Mm -hmm. i mean people are like well that's offensive he shouldn't have said that and he did say i shouldn't have said that but it's it is interesting how it's changed how culture over time is like now it's just like yeah you know yeah no you're right in that exchange what did buckley learn after that exchange more than anything else he learned never again to let someone else control the environment he was in. Buckley always made sure that he was in control of the situation. So on his TV show, he made sure that his producer was always going to do what he wanted. The guests who would come on, he would argue with them. He would debate them. It would be a genuine discussion, but it wouldn't be someone who was who is intended to do harm to his reputation because he realized that there are some people out there who, quite frankly, are just jerks, and Gore Vidal was one of them. I've read a couple of his books, and... The man was just... Unhappy. He was very unhappy. I think yeah. that's, that's a good way. That's the kindest way to I, put it. I, same boat. Yeah. He was just very, very unhappy. Yeah. And it came through. I mean... It did. It was very And not just life. in that in that clip, which for those of you who haven't seen it, there's actually a, a documentary on this whole thing called Best of Enemies. I would highly recommend seeing it or just finding that clip online. Because you can tell that Vidal, he gets this, this kind of Cheshire Cat grin like, ha I won. Regardless of how the rest of the debate goes, regardless of how the election goes, I've done what I wanted to do. I just tarnished William F. Buckley's reputation. There are lots of people out there, sadly, who that's their goal. Yeah, sadly is the key word. Not out to change minds, not out to influence ideas, not yeah. out to do anything to contribute to anything. Just exactly. trying to cause harm. Yeah. That's a sad state. So in the podcast, you covered about just how verbose Buckley was. Yes. Um, You have an example of that from Firing Line. I do. Just for our listeners, a lot of the Firing Line episodes, uh, and especially the debates, are available for free on YouTube from the Hoover Institution. I would encourage you all to go and watch some of these. They're, They're easy listening. You can listen to it in the background while you're working. They're great, great demonstrations of how political debate used to be. Regardless of your politics, you can hate everything William F. Buckley stood for and still enjoy his, uh, his show. But yeah, I do have one clip. This is from a debate. The debate happened uh, in December of 1994. So what is that, 25 years ago. The resolution is uh, resolved that the women's movement has been disastrous. And what you're going to hear is Buckley's opening statement, and he's facing Betty Friedan, author of The Feminine Mystique, one of the most influential women in American history. And he's basically attacking her entire movement. Now today, if you saw people debating, it would be hurling one insult after another, and it would just it would devolve very quickly into vitriol. But the way he opens this is really interesting. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, 24 years ago, Jermaine Greer was retained by the Cambridge Union to debate with me on some aspect of the women's movement. She insisted that I formulate the resolution, which I attempted to do. The trouble was that she rejected my first three proposals on the ground that they were, if I remember, stupid. Uh, asinine, something similar for the third. The telephone call from the president of the union was now desperate. The BBC, which was filming the encounter, needed to know the resolution before noon the next day when their guide went out to print. I sat down at the typewriter and tapped out, resolved, give them an inch and they'll take a mile. But thank God I was smart enough 
to say no to myself. No, no, we don't play those, those games with Jermaine Greer. So disconsolately, I moved in the direction she had made it clear, however oblique communica communication she wanted to go. I gave her resolve, the women's movement is a failure. She loved it. Absolutely certain that she would win any resolution so incautiously formulated. And I knew she would win it not only because it is almost impossible to contend that the women's movement is a total failure, but because uh, her considerable wit and learning <coughs> would profitably scorn anyone who ventured, let alone argued the opposite. Yet um, here we were contending with this, here we are contending with this distinguished uh, panel on the resolution that the women's movement isn't a failure, but that it is a disaster. I will contend, and perhaps uh, my colleagues will, will go along, that there is a difference. The women's movement has accomplished certain goals encouraged by sensible people, and yet at the same time it is a disaster. Even as one might argue that the civil rights movement has accomplished a great deal, yet agree with such as Professor Sowell that from certain perspectives, with crime, illegitimacy, ethnic hostility is also a disaster. Well, how so? Uh, inevitably, one thinks of the most conspicuous symbols of a disaster. Such a symbol is, of course, political correctness. I have in my briefcase, Mr. Chairman, an article by Phyllis Schlafly. She is the godmother of the anti-feminist movement. We are careful tonight to identify the women's movement, not with such as Claire Booth Luce, who was a feminist but despised the movement's excesses, but with such as my old friend Betty Friedan, the founder of the National Organization of Women, whose idea of a perfect culmination of feminism would be when the commandant of the Citadel announced a school holiday to celebrate her abortion. But consider the far reaches of the women's movement and its effect on people is preternaturally normal, as Mrs. Schlafly, in a published essay in Current Events last month, she used the following sentence, quote, feminism has no happy role and can boast of almost no legislative victories. Its ideology is still, and its spokespersons are bitter. It's what are bitter? It's spokespersons. Now, if you are not disrupted by the word spokesperson used in place of the simple word spokesman, denoting someone, whether male or female, who speaks for a collectivity, then the assault on your ear is nothing less than disastrous. But no one is more eloquent on the subject of PC than Professor Pallia. If the search for so-called gender-neutral language causes you to refer to first-year college students as fresh persons, and to bridle at the sentence, man is born to be free, then that is truly a disastrous uh, turn against the laws of tradition and euphony. Yet it is so, uh, even in quarters that would squirm at the least liberty taken with the Bill of Rights, which no longer protects traditional usage, women should indeed and obviously be free to engage in any pursuit desired, but where did we get the conviction that to admit a woman into the citadel is to augment freedom uh, even as it denies to men the right to seek single-sex military education. Is the women's movement properly celebrating the first woman fighter pilot killed in a training accident on an aircraft carrier? Uh, is the women's uh, movement uh, reduced to enthusiasm for the right to abort a fetus? The movement uh, that in its devotion to choice refuses even to consider any possibility that the fetus deserves protection. I'm just about through. Subjects ever so solemn, Mr. Chairman, but they're spoken in my case as the only male on the positive team, but I am not, so to speak, here as a former slaveholder, 
feigning enthusiasm for the Emancipation Proclamation in my lifetime, in the company of my mother and my teachers and six sisters, the very idea that women should not have the freedoms of a free society simply did not occur to my father or my three brothers. Nothing else was even conceivable. But we did not think that, the, that parity should lead to the indistinction now everywhere urged, uh, symbolized by the raw fear of using the word spokesman or mankind to denote thoughts entirely pure, pure and free of sexual abuse. It is because of the excesses of the movement, Mr. Chairman, that we conclude that what began as the affirmation of rights became instead the nightmare we now designate as a disaster. Wow. So he's, yeah, he's, he's got quite a vocabulary. I think that was just one long sentence oh in, his, uh, uh, in his opening there. By the way, did you know he was actually satirized, or he was one of the characters that um, Robin Williams used when he was the genie in the original Aladdin movie? There's yeah, a brief yeah, moment where you see William F. Buckley in Anyway. So firing line. That it's basically it's it. You said the word earlier. Or the words earlier. Uh, word vomit. That's basically intellectual word vomit. I mean, and there are, there are videos of people who are just like you can just tell they're overwhelmed by his uh, his <laughs> delivery. Like, just say you don't agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is interesting, after the outburst that he had with Gore Vidal, that he managed to recoup everything and have this show that was yeah. immensely successful. Well, it was it was successful before Gore Vidal. That, uh, Firing Line started two years before that, okay. so he already had a reputation, and he basically presented that for what it was. It was, a, it was an outburst, it was a mistake, he apologized to his Firing Line audience, for those who had, who had seen it, and then, yeah, he just kind of kept on going. Kept on going. Nice. How would you compare firing line in the format to what we see on the news today? There's there's no comparison whatsoever. A firing line episode up until I think 1995 was an hour long, and it was an hour long on one subject. It was Buckley and his either opponent or whoever his guest was talking to each other. People today don't have the the attention span. This is not an insult. It's just a recognition of of how our world has changed. People don't have the attention span to listen on a single subject for more than, what, seven or eight minutes max? If you watch CNN or MSNBC or Fox News today on their political talk shows, you know, you're, you're switching subjects every three or four minutes. And yet you're supposed, we're supposed to be to understand what, you know, these very, very complex issues. Firing line, they'll take, for example, the episode with Muhammad Ali. They took an hour and just discussed the black nationalism movement. I watched that. And I didn't know a whole lot about that whole ideology in the uh, in the 60s and 70s. I watched that, and I came away. I really understand a whole lot more about that. Whereas I watch my favorite show, and this is going to out me probably in my political beliefs. My favorite news show to watch is Tucker Carlson. He'll bring on someone, and they'll talk, but they'll talk about a huge complex issue in seven minutes, and I go away like I'm angry, and I don't know any more than I already did about this issue. Yeah. So one, firing line is completely different yeah. from anything we have on TV today. Yeah. It's more it's more like talk radio. Whether it's liberal talk radio or conservative talk radio, they can go over a topic and really unpack it. They don't have the formatting restrictions of I have to completely dissect an issue in seven minutes. Okay. So in this section of the podcast, Miles Gone By, you reference a quote from Buckley about a certain political figure at the time <laughs> who was running under the Reform Party ticket. Yeah, he um, wasn't a politician at the time. He, he was, was uh, not. He, he was, was not. a star of the New York Post front page about every other week. So that person is now the President of the United States under the Republican ticket. How would Buckley view President Trump today versus <laughs> candidate Trump 18 years ago? I can only speculate 
people have asked his son, Christopher Buckley, and he has said that his father probably would not like Donald Trump, and I would I would have to agree. I agree with that. I I think well, he would be horrified at Trump's mangling of the English language for one thing because Buckley believed that words mean things and you can't just distort the meaning, you can't just invent new words and then Twitter would horrify him. But I think the the message of his uh, of his article 18 years ago in, in uh, Cigar Aficionado is true today. I mean, say what you want about President Trump, whether you like him or whether you hate him, the tactics he used to win in 2016, or that helped him win at least, were that of a demagogue. And not in the dictatorship sense, but in the sense of I'm going to appeal directly over the heads of the media, over the heads of the intellectual and political elite, and I'm going to speak directly to the American people. And I'm going to give them exactly what they want. I don't care about ideology. I don't care about party platform. I still think he's you know, much more of a Democrat than he is a Republican on a lot of issues, especially social issues, but it was what the American people wanted. They were sick and tired for two decades of the elites basically saying, we're going to say one thing and do another. They were tired of it. And Trump is able to go right over their heads, right over the, the elite's heads, and say, I understand how you're feeling. It is exactly what Teddy Roosevelt did about a century, about 120 years ago. He used what he called the bully pulpit to go right over the heads of the newspaper elites of that time and gave the American people what they want. It's exactly what Franklin Roosevelt did. It's exactly what Ronald Reagan did. Unfortunately, it's also what people like Mussolini and Francisco Franco and to an extent Adolf Hitler did. I'm not comparing Trump or any of these other people to that, but there is a dark and dangerous side to demagoguery that we, you always have to be very careful of. And yeah. I worry that now that kind of the torch has been lit, that we're going to see more of that in the upcoming, well, not just the next presidential race, but every presidential race going forward. Because this is the first time that a demagogue with no political experience, but just, you know, a phone and a Twitter account has won. And it shows, again, the power of social media. I think that Buckley would disagree with Trump's style, obviously. Mm -hmm. Obviously his words, but not his policies. Some of them he would. Buckley was ardently free trade. Trump likes tariffs. Buckley was pro-life. Trump, I don't I mean, know by his, his view actions, on that. By his actions, well, he's pro-life. Pro but, but what he said for most of his life, he's pro-choice. And then in terms of, I, th I think where Buckley and Trump would agree is on foreign policy. Because Buckley was very, very anti-war in Iraq, anti-nation building in the Middle East. You know, Buckley lived until 2008, so he saw what 9-11 and the war in Iraq did to the Republican Party, pulled it in that Wilsonian idea of we have to, you know, build democracies in the desert, and that didn't work, and it isn't working now. And Trump ran on that kind of a platform. So I think Buckley would agree with him in that sense, but a lot of the stuff that he's doing, not a lot, but some of the stuff that he's doing, especially on trade, I think Buckley would be very, very opposed to. Because there have been so many compromises, I think, historically by the GOP in terms of policy. Like they, they've always yeah. believed something, or they've always espoused some idea or some, some ideology and then they've never acted on it, or mm -hmm. they've acted very rarely on it, or they've backed down as soon as there's been some kind of thumb on them or something, yeah. or any type of bad press coverage, they retreat into a hole and never say anything mm -hmm. again. My question specifically is, is like, how do we bridge the gap between what we're seeing in conservatism today versus what Buckley espoused in his day? We have to stop demonizing people we disagree with. I mean, that's, that's a solution for more than just the pro-Trump and the never-Trump crowd in, in within the conservative movement. That's also 
the key to finding common ground between Republicans and Democrats, between liberals and conservatives. We have to realize that people can, in good faith and good conscience, disagree with one another and not immediately resort to calling them Hitler right. or something like that. And I think Buckley would agree with that. Oh, yeah. I, at least, I hope so. Yeah. I always try to ensure that Buckley agrees with me. Yeah, there's value in having good friends who yeah. don't agree with you on Absolutely. everything. It's just like, I don't want to be told yes all the time. No, and you don't want to surround yourself only with people you, you agree with. Right. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of William F. Buckley. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Be sure to leave us a review on wherever you hear this podcast. It really does help. Thanks, and see you next week.